0: Chapter twenty eight of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter twenty eight. Ride from Weston near Southampton to Kensington. Weston Grove, eighteenth October, eighteen twenty six i broke off abruptly under this same date in my last register when speaking of william the conqueror's demolishing of towns and villages to make the new forest and i was about to show that all the historians have told us lies the most abominable about this affair of the new forest or that the scotch writers on population and particularly charmers have been the greatest of fools or the most impudent of impostors i therefore now resume this matter it being in my opinion a matter of great interest at a time when, in order to account for the present notoriously bad living of the people of England, it is asserted that they are become greatly more numerous than they formerly were. This would be no defence of the government, even if the fact were so. But, as I have over and over again proved, the fact is false, and to this I challenge denial, that either churches and great mansions and castles were formerly made without hands, or, England was, seven hundred years ago, much more populous than it is now. But what has the formation of the new forest to do with this? A great deal, for the historians tell us that, in order to make this forest, William the Conqueror destroyed many populous towns and villages, and thirty-six parish churches. The devil he did! How populous, then, good God, must England have been at that time, which was about the year 1090, that is to say 736 years ago, for the Scotch will hardly contend that the nature of the soil has been changed for the worse since that time, especially as it has not been cultivated no no brassy as they are they will not do that come then let us see how this matter stands this forest has been crawled upon by favourites and is now much smaller than it used to be a time may and will come for inquiring how george rose and others became owners of some of the very best parts of this once public property a time for such inquiry must come before the people of england will ever give their consent to a reduction of the interest of the debt but this we know that the new forest formerly extended westward from the southampton water and the river ouse to the river avon and northward from lymington haven to the borders of wiltshire we know that this was its utmost extent and we know also that the towns of christchurch lymington ringwood and fordingbridge and the villages of boulder forley lyndhurst dipton ealing minstead and all the other villages that now have churches we know i say and pray mark it that all these towns and villages existed before the norman conquest because the roman names of several of them all the towns are in print and because an account of them all is to be found in doomsday book which was made by this very william the conqueror well then now scotch population liars and you malthusian blasphemers who contend that god has implanted in man a principle that leads him to starvation come now and face this history of the new forest cook in his geography of hampshire says that the Conqueror destroyed here many populous towns and villages, and thirty-six parish churches. The same writer says that, in the time of Edward the Confessor, just before the Conqueror came, two-thirds of the forest was inhabited and cultivated. Guthrie says nearly the same thing. But let us hear the two historians who are now pitted against each other, Hume and Lingard. The former, volume 2, page 277, says there was one pleasure to which william as well as all the normans and ancient saxons was extremely addicted and that was hunting but this pleasure he indulged more at the expense of his unhappy subjects whose interests he always disregarded than to the loss or diminution of his own revenue not content with those large forests which former kings possessed in all parts of england he resolved to make a new forest near winchester the usual place of his residence and for that purpose he laid waste the county of hampshire for an extent of thirty miles, expelled the inhabitants from their houses, seized their property, even demolished churches and convents, and made the sufferers no compensation for the injury. Pretty well for a pensioned Scotchman. And now let us hear Dr. Lingard, to prevent his society from presenting whose work to me the sincere and pious Samuel Butler was ready to go down upon his marrow-bones. Let us hear the good doctor upon this subject he says volume one pages four hundred and fifty two and four hundred and fifty three though the king possessed sixty-eight forests besides parks and chases in different parts of england he was not yet satisfied but for the occasional accommodation of his court a forested and extensive tract of country lying between the city of winchester and the sea coast the inhabitants were expelled the cottages and the churches were burnt and more than thirty square miles of a rich and populous district were withdrawn from cultivation and converted into a wilderness to afford sufficient range for the deer and ample space for the royal diversion. The memory of this act of despotism has been perpetuated in the name of the new forest, which it retains at the present day, after the lapse of 750 years. Historians should be careful how they make statements relative to places which are within the scope of the reader's inspection. It is next to impossible not to believe that the doctor has, in this case, a very interesting one, merely copied from Hume. Hume says that the king expelled the inhabitants, and Lingard says the inhabitants were expelled. Hume says that the king demolished the churches, and Lingard says that the churches were burned, but Hume says churches and convents, and Lingard knew that to be a lie. The doctor was too learned upon the subject of convents to follow the Scotchman here. Hume says that the king laid waste to the country for an extent of thirty miles. The doctor says that a district of thirty square miles was withdrawn from cultivation, "'and converted into a wilderness. "'Now what Hume mean by the loose phrase "'an extent of thirty miles, I cannot say. "'But this I know, that Dr. Lingard's thirty square miles is a piece of ground "'only five and a half miles each way. "'So that the doctor has got here "'a curious district and a not less curious wilderness, "'and what number of churches could William "'find to burn in a space five miles and a half each way? "'If the doctor meaned thirty miles square "'instead of square miles, "'the falsehood is so monstrous "'as to destroy his credit for ever.' for here we have nine hundred square miles containing five hundred and seventy six thousand acres of land that is to say fifty six thousand nine hundred and sixty acres more than are contained in the whole of the county of surrey and ninety nine thousand eight hundred and forty acres more than are contained in the whole of the county of barks this is history is it and these are historians the true statement is this the new forest according to its ancient state was bounded thus by the line going from the river ouse to the river avon and which line there separates wiltshire from hampshire by the river avon by the sea from christchurch to Calshock castle by the southampton water and by the river Ouse. these are the boundaries and as any one may by scale and compass ascertain there are within these boundaries about two hundred and twenty four square miles containing a hundred and forty three thousand three hundred and sixty acres of land within these limits there are now remaining eleven parish churches all of which were in existence before the time of william the conqueror so that if he destroyed thirty-six parish churches, what a populous country this must have been! There must have been forty-seven parish churches, so that there was over this whole district one parish church to every four and three-quarters square miles. Thus then the churches must have stood on an average at within one mile and about two hundred yards of each other, and observe the parishes could on an average contain no more each than two thousand nine hundred and sixty-six acres of land, not a very large farm, so that here was a parish church to every large farm, unless these historians are all fools and liars i defy any one to say that i make hazardous assertions i have plainly described the ancient boundaries they are the maps any one can with scale and compass measure the area as well as i can i have taken the statements of historians as they call themselves i have shown that their histories as they call them are fabulous or and mind this or that england was at one time and that too eight hundred years ago beyond all measures more populous than it is now for observe notwithstanding what dr lingard asserts notwithstanding that he describes this district as rich it is the very poorest in the whole kingdom dr lingard was i believe born and bred at winchester and how then could he be so callous, or indeed so regardless of truth and i do not see why i am to mince the matter with him as to describe this as a rich district innumerable persons have seen bagshot heath great numbers have seen the barren heaths between london and brighton great numbers also have seen that wide sweep of barrenness which exhibits itself between the golden Farmer Hill and Blackwater. Nine-tenths of each of these are less barren than four-fifths of the land in the new forest. Supposing it to be credible that a man so prudent and so wise as William the Conqueror, supposing that such a man should have pitched upon a rich and populous district wherewith to make a chase, supposing in short these historians to have spoken the truth, and supposing this barren land, to have been all inhabited and cultivated, and the people so numerous and so rich as to be able to build and endow a parish church upon every four and three-quarters square miles upon this extensive district, supposing them to have been so rich in the produce of the soil as to want a priest to be stationed at every mile in two hundred yards in order to help them to eat it, supposing in a word these historians not to be the most farcical liars that ever put pen upon paper, this country must at the time of the Norman conquest have literally swarmed with people. For there is the land now, and all the land too, neither hume nor dr lingard can change the nature of that there it is an acre of it not having upon an average so much a productive capacity in it as one single square rod taking the average of worcestershire and if i were to say one single square yard i should be right there is the land and if that land were as these historians say it was covered with people and with churches what the devil must worcestershire have been to this then we come at last having made out what i undertook to show namely that the historians as they call themselves Are either the greatest fools or the greatest liars that have existed or that england was beyond all measure more populous eight hundred years ago than it is now poor however as this district is and culled about as it has been for the best spots of land by those favourites who have got grants of land or leases or something or other still there are some spots here and there which would grow trees but never will it grow trees or anything else to the profit of this nation until it become private property public property must in some cases be in the hands of public officers but this is not an affair of that nature this is too loose a concern too little controllable by superiors it is a thing calculated for jobbing above all others calculated to promote the success of favoritism who can imagine that the persons employed about plantations and farms for the public are employed because they are fit for the employment supposing the commissioners to hold in abhorrence the idea of paying for services to themselves under the name of paying for services to the public, supposing them never to have heard of such a thing in their lives, can they imagine that nothing of this sort takes place while they are in London eleven months out of twelve in the year? I never feel disposed to cast much censure upon any of the persons engaged in such concerns. The temptation is too great to be resisted. The public must pay for everything à poids d'or, therefore no such thing should be in the hands of the public, or rather of the government and I hope to live to see this thing completely taken out of the hands of this government. It was nightfall when we arrived at Ealing, that is to say, at the head of the Southampton water. Our horses were very hungry. We stopped to bait them, and set off just about dusk to come to this place, Weston Grove, stopping at Southampton on our way, and leaving a letter to come to London. Between Southampton and this place we cross a bridge over the Itchen River, and, coming up a hill into a common, which is called Townhill Common, we passed, lying on our right, a little park and house, occupied by the Irish Bible man, Lord Ashdown. I think they call him, whose real name is French, and whose family are so very well known in the most unfortunate sister kingdom. Just at the back of his house, in another sort of paddock place, lives a man, whose name I forget, who was, I believe, a coachmaker in the East Indies, and whose father or uncle kept a turnpike gate at Chelsea a few years ago. See the effects of industry and enterprise. But even these would be nothing, were it not for this wondrous system, by which money can be snatched away from the labourer in this very parish, for instance, sent off to the East Indies, there helped to make a mass to put into the hands of an adventurer, and that the mass may be brought back in the pockets of the adventurer, and cause him to be called a squire by the labourer, whose earnings were so snatched away. Wondrous system! Pity it cannot last for ever! Pity that it has got a debt of a thousand millions to pay! pity that it cannot turn paper into gold pity that it will make such fools of prosperity robinson and his colleagues the moon shone very bright by the time that we mounted the hill and now skirting the enclosures upon the edge of the common we passed several of those cottages which i so well recollected and in which i had the satisfaction to believe that the inhabitants were sitting comfortably with bellies full by a good fire it was eight o'clock before we arrived at mr chamberlain's whom i had not seen since i think the year eighteen sixteen for in the fall of that year i came to london and i never returned to botley which is only about three miles and a half from weston to stay there for any length of time to those who like water scenes as nineteen-twentieths of people do it is the prettiest spot i believe in all england mr chamberlain built the house about twenty years ago he has been bringing the place to greater and greater perfection from that time to this "'all round about the house is in the neatest possible order. "'I should think that altogether there cannot be so little as ten acres of short grass, "'and when I say that, those who know anything about gardens "'will form a pretty correct general notion as to the scale on which the thing is carried on. "'Until of late Mr. Chamberlain was owner of only a small part, comparatively, "'of the lands hereabouts. "'He is now the owner, I believe, of the whole of the lands that come down to the water's edge, "'and that lie between the ferry over the itchen at Southampton.' And the river which goes out from the Southampton Water at Hamble. And now let me describe as well as I can what this land and its situation are. The Southampton Water begins at Portsmouth and goes up by Southampton to Redbridge, being upon an average about two miles wide, having on the one side the New Forest, and on the other side, for a great part of the way, this fine and beautiful estate of Mr. Chamberlain. Both sides of this water have rising lands divided into hill and dale, and very beautifully clothed with trees the woods and lawns and fields being most advantageously intermixed. It is very curious that at the back of each of these tracts of land there are extensive heaths on this side as well as on the new forest side. To stand here and look across the water at the new forest you would imagine that it was really a country of woods, for you can see nothing of the heaths from here, those heaths over which we rode and from which we could see a windmill down among the trees, which windmill is now to be seen just opposite this place. So that the views from this place are the most beautiful that can be imagined you see up the water and down the water to redbridge one way and out to spithead the other way through the trees to the right you see the spires of southampton and you have only to walk a mile over a beautiful lawn and through a not less beautiful wood to find in a little dell surrounded with lofty woods the venerable ruins of netley abbey which make part of mr chamberlain's estate the woods here are chiefly of oak the ground consists of a series of hill and dale as you go longwise from one end of the estate to the other, about six miles in length. Down almost every little valley that divides these hills or hillocks there is more or less of water, making the underwood in those parts very thick and dark to go through, and these form the most delightful contrast with the fields and lawns. There are innumerable vessels of various sizes continually upon the water, and to those that delight in water scenes this is certainly the very prettiest place that I ever saw in my life. I had seen it many years ago, and as I intended to come here on my way home, I told George before we set out, that I would show him another Weston before we got to London. The parish in which his father's house is is also called Weston, and a very beautiful spot it certainly is, but I told him I questioned whether I could not show him a still prettier Weston than that. We let him alone for the first day. He sat in the house and saw great multitudes of pheasants and partridges upon the lawn before the window he went down to the water-side by himself, and put his foot upon the ground to see the tide rise. He seemed very much delighted. The second morning at breakfast we put it to him which he would rather have, this Weston, or the Weston he had left in Herefordshire. But though I introduced the question in a way almost to extort a decision in favour of the Hampshire Weston, he decided instantly and plumped for the other, in a manner very much to the delight of Mr. Chamberlain and his sister. So true it is that when people are uncorrupted. They always like home best to be it in itself what it may everything that nature can do has been done here and money most judiciously employed has come to her assistance here are a thousand things to give pleasure to any rational mind but there is one thing which in my estimation surpasses in pleasure to contemplate all the lawns and all the groves and all the gardens and all the game and everything else and that is the real unaffected goodness of the owner of this estate he is a member for southampton he has other fine estates He has great talents, he is much admired by all who know him, but he has done more by his justice, by his just way of thinking with regard to the labouring people, than in all other ways put together. This was nothing new to me, for I was well informed of it several years ago, though I had never heard him speak of it in my life. When he came to this place the common wages of day labouring men were thirteen shillings a week, and the wages of carpenters, bricklayers, and other tradesmen were in proportion those wages he has given from that time to this without any abatement whatever with these wages a man can live having at the same time other advantages attending the working for such a man as mr chamberlain he has got less money in his bags than he would have had if he had ground men down in their wages but if his sleep be not sounder than that of the hard-fisted wretch that can walk over grass and gravel kept in order by a poor creature that is half starved if his sleep be not sounder than the sleep of such a wretch then all that we have been taught is false, and there is no difference between the man who feeds, and the man who starves the poor, all the scripture is a bundle of lies, and instead of being propagated, it ought to be flung into the fire. It is curious enough that those who are the least disposed to give good wages to the labouring people, should be the most disposed to discover for them schemes for saving their money. I have lately seen, I saw it at uphusband, a prospectus or scheme, for establishing what they call a county-friendly society. This is a scheme for getting from the poor a part of the wages that they receive, just as if a poor fellow could put anything by out of eight shillings a week. If indeed the schemers were to pay the labourers twelve or thirteen shillings a week, then these might have something to lay by at some times of the year. But then indeed there would be no poor rates wanted, and it is to get rid of the poor rates that these schemers have invented their society. What wretched drivellers they must be, to think that they should be able to make the pauper keep the pauper! To think that they shall be able to make the man that is half-starved lay by part of his loaf i know of no county where the poor are worse treated than in many parts of this county of hans it is happy to know of one instance in which they are well treated and i deem it a real honour to be under the roof of him who has uniformly set so laudable an example in this most important concern what are all his riches to me they form no title to my respect tis not for me to set myself up in judgment as to his taste his learning his various qualities and endowments, but of these his unequivocal works I am a competent judge. I know how much good he must do, and there is a great satisfaction in reflecting on the great happiness that he must feel when, in laying his head upon his pillow of a cold and dreary winter night, he reflects that there are scores, ay, scores upon scores, of his country people, of his poor neighbours, of those whom the Scripture denominates his brethren, who have been enabled through him to retire to a warm bed after spending a cheerful evening, and taking a full meal by the side of their own fire. People may talk what they will about happiness, but I can figure to myself no happiness surpassing that of the man who falls to sleep with reflections like these in his mind. Now observe, it is a duty on my part to relate what I have here related as to the conduct of Mr. Chamberlain, not a duty towards him, for I can do him no good by it, and I do most sincerely believe that both he, and his equally benevolent sister, would rather that their goodness remained unproclaimed, but it is a duty towards my country, and particularly towards my readers. Here is a striking and a most valuable practical example. Here is a whole neighbourhood of labourers, living as they ought to live, enjoying that happiness which is the just reward of their toil. And shall I suppress facts so honourable to those who are the cause of this happiness, facts so interesting in themselves, and so likely to be useful in the way of example? Shall I do this I, and besides this, tacitly give a false account of western grove and this too from the stupid and cowardly fear of being accused of flattering a rich man netley abbey ought it seems to be called letley abbey the latin name being latus locus or pleasant place letley was made up of an abbreviation of the latus and of the saxon word lee which meaned place field or piece of ground this abbey was founded by henry the third in twelve thirty nine for twelve monks of the benedictine order and when suppressed by the wife-killer its revenues amounted to three thousand two hundred pounds a year of our present money the possessions of these monks were by the wife-killing founder of the church of england given away though they belonged to the public to one of his court sycophants sir william paulette a man the most famous in the whole world for sycophancy time-serving and for all those qualities which usually distinguish the favourites of kings like the wife-killer this paulette changed from the popish to henry the eighth's religion and was a great actor in punishing the Papists. When Edward VI came to the throne, this Paulette turned Protestant, and was a great actor in punishing those who adhered to Henry VIII's religion. When Queen Mary came to the throne, this Paulette turned back to Papist, and was one of the great actors in sending Protestants to be burnt in Smithfield. When Old Bess came to the throne, this Paulette turned back to Protestant again, and was, until the day of his death, one of the great actors in persecuting, in fining, in mulcting, and in putting to death those who still had the virtue and the courage to adhere to the religion in which they and he had been born and bred. The head of this family got at last to be Earl of Wiltshire, Marquis of Winchester and Duke of Bolton. This last title is now gone, or rather, it is changed to that of Lord Bolton, which is now borne by a man of the name of Ord, who is the son of a man of that name, who died some years ago, and who married a daughter, I think it was, of the last Duke of Bolton. Pretty curious and not a little interesting to look back at the origin of this dukedom of Bolton, and then to look at the person now bearing the title of Bolton, and then to go to Abbotston near Winchester, and survey the ruins of the proud palace, once inhabited by the Duke of Bolton, which ruins, and the estate on which they stand, are now the property of the loan-maker Alexander Baring. Curious turn of things! Henry the wife-killer and his confiscating successors granted the estates of Netley and of many other monasteries to the head of these paulets. to maintain these and other similar grants, a thing called a reformation was made, To maintain the Reformation, a glorious revolution was made. To maintain the glorious revolution, a debt was made. To maintain the debt, a large part of the rents must go to the debt-dealers or loan-makers, and thus at last the bearings, only in this one neighbourhood, have become the successors of the Rothsleys, the Paulettes, and the Russells, who throughout all the reigns of confiscation were constantly in the way, when a distribution of good things was taking place. Curious enough all this, but the thing will not stop here. The loan-makers think that they shall outwit the old grantee-fellows, and so they might, and the people too, and the devil himself, but they cannot outwit events. Those events will have a thorough rummaging, and of this fact the turn of the market gentlemen may be assured. Can it be law, I put the question to lawyers, can it be law, I leave reason and justice out of the inquiry, can it be law that if I to-day see dressed in good clothes, and with a full purse, a man who was notoriously penniless yesterday, can it be law that i being a justice of the peace have a right to demand of that man how he came by his clothes and his purse and can it be law that i seeing with an estate a man who was notoriously not worth a crown piece a few years ago and who is notoriously related to nothing more than one degree above beggary can it be law that i a magistrate seeing this have not a right to demand of this man how he came by his estate no matter however for if both these be law now, they will not, I trust, be law in a few years from this time. Mr. Chamberlain has caused the ancient fish-ponds at Netley Abbey to be reclaimed, as they call it. What a loss, what a national loss there has been in this way, and in the article of waterfowl! I am quite satisfied that, in these two articles, and in that of rabbits, the nation has lost, has had annihilated, within the last two hundred and fifty years, food sufficient for two days in the week, on an average, taking the year throughout these are things too which cost so little labour you can see the marks of old fish ponds in thousands and thousands of places i have noticed i dare say five hundred since i left home a trifling expense would in most cases restore them but nowadays all is looked for at shops all is to be had by trafficking scarcely any one thinks of providing for his own wants out of his own land and other his own domestic means to buy the thing ready made is the taste of the day thousands who are housekeepers buy their dinners ready cooked Nothing is so common as to rent breasts for children to suck. A man actually advertised in the London papers about two months ago to supply childless husbands with heirs. In this case the articles were, of course, to be ready-made, for to make them to order would be the devil of a business, though in desperate cases even this is, I believe, sometimes resorted to. Hambledon, Sunday, 22nd October, 1826. We left Weston Grove on Friday morning and came across to Botley, where we remained during the rest of the day and until after breakfast yesterday i had not seen the botley parson for several years and i wished to have a look at him now but could not get a sight of him though we rode close before his house at much about his breakfast time and though we gave him the strongest of invitation that could be expressed by hallooing and by cracking of whips the fox was too cunning for us and do all we could we could not provoke him to put even his nose out of kennel from mr james warner's at botley we went to mr hallett's at allington and had the very great pleasure of seeing him in excellent health we intended to go back to botley and then to go to titchfield and in our way to this place over ports hill whence i intended to show george the harbour and the fleet and of still more importance the spot on which we signed the hampshire petition in eighteen seventeen that petition which foretold that which the norfolk petition confirmed that petition which will be finally acted upon all that petition was the very last thing that i wrote at botley I came to London in November 1816. The Power of Imprisonment Bill was passed in February 1817. Just before it was passed the meeting took place on Portsdown Hill, and I, in my way to the hill from London, stopped at Botley and wrote the petition. We had one meeting afterwards at Winchester, when I heard Parsons swear like troopers, and saw one of them hawk up his spittle, and spit it into Lord Cochrane's pall. Ah, my bucks, we have you now. You are got nearly to the end of your tether, and what is more you know it. "'Pay off the debt, parsons! "'It is useless to swear and spit and to present addresses "'applauding power of imprisonment bills, "'unless you can pay off the debt.' "'Pay off the debt, parsons! "'They say you can lay the devil. "'Lay this devil, then, or confess that he is too many for you, Ay, "'and for Sturgis Bourne, or Bourne Sturgis, I forget which, at your backs.' "'From Arlington, we, fearing that it would rain "'before we could get round by Titchfield, "'came across the country over Waltham Chase and Soberton down, The chase was very green and fine, but the down was the very greenest thing that I have seen in the whole country. It is not a large down, perhaps not more than five or six hundred acres, but the land is good. The chalk is at a foot from the surface or more, the mould is a hazel mould, and when I was upon the opposite hill I could, though I knew the spot very well, hardly believe that it was a down. The green was darker than that of any pasture, or even any same foin or clover, that I had seen throughout the whole of my ride and I should suppose that there could not have been many less than a thousand sheep in the three flocks that were feeding upon the down when I came across it. I do not speak with anything like positiveness as to the measurement of this down, but I do not believe that it exceeds six hundred and fifty acres. They must have had more rain in this part of the country than in most other parts of it. Indeed, no part of Hampshire seems to have suffered very much from the drought. I found the turnips pretty good of both sorts all the way from Andover to Rumsey. Through the new forest you may as well expect to find loaves of bread growing in fields as turnips, where there are any fields for them to grow in. From Redbridge to Weston we had not light enough to see much about us, but when we came down to Botley we there found the turnips as good as I had ever seen them in my life, as far as I could judge from the time I had to look at them. Mr. Warner has as fine turnip fields as I ever saw him have, Swedish turnips and white also, and pretty nearly the same may be said of the whole of that neighbourhood for many miles round." After quitting Serbiton down, we came up a hill leading to Hambledon, and turned off to our left to bring us down to Mr. Goldsmith's at West End, where we now are, at about a mile from the village of Hambledon. A village it now is, but it was formerly a considerable market town, and it had three fairs in the year. There is now not even the name of market left, I believe, and the fairs amount to little more than a couple of three gingerbread stalls, with dolls and whistles for children. If you go through the place, you see that it has been a considerable town. The church tells the same story. It is now a tumble-down, rubbishy place. It is partaking in the fate of all those places which were formerly a sort of rendezvous for persons for things to buy and things to sell. Wends have devoured market towns and villages, and shops have devoured markets and fairs, and this to the infinite injury of the most numerous classes of the people. Shopkeeping, merely a shopkeeping, is injurious to any community. What are the shop and the shopkeeper for? To receive and distribute the produce of the land there are other articles certainly but the main part is the produce of the land the shop must be paid for the shopkeeper must be kept and the one must be paid for and the other must be kept by the consumer of the produce or perhaps partly by the consumer and partly by the producer when fairs were very frequent shops were not needed a manufacturer of shoes of stockings of hats of almost anything that man wants could manufacture at home in an obscure hamlet with cheap house rent good air and plenty of room He need pay no heavy rent for shop, and no disadvantages from confined situation, and then by attending three or four or five or six fairs in a year, he sold the work of his hands, unloaded with a heavy expense attending the keeping of a shop. He would get more for ten shillings in a booth at a fair or market, than he would get in a shop for ten or twenty pounds. Of course he could afford to sell the work of his hands for less, and thus a greater portion of the earnings remained with those who raised the food and the clothing from the land. I had an instance of this in what occurred to myself at Wayhill Fair. When I was at Salisbury in September I wanted to buy a whip. It was a common hunting-whip with a hook to it to pull open gates with, and I could not get it for less than seven shillings and sixpence. This was more than I had made up my mind to give, and I went on with my switch. When we got to Wayhill Fair George had made shift to lose his whip some time before, and I had made him go without one by way of punishment. But now, having come to the fair, and seen plenty of whips, I bought him one. "'just such a one as had been offered me at Salisbury for seven and sixpence, for four and sixpence, and seeing the man with his whips afterwards I thought I would have one myself, and he let me have it for three shillings. "'So that here were two whips precisely of the same kind and quality as the whip at Salisbury bought for the money which the man at Salisbury asked me for one whip, and yet far be it from me to accuse the man at Salisbury of an attempt at extortion. "'He had an expensive shop and a family in a town to support.' while my wayhill fellow had been making his whips in some house in the country which he rented probably for five or six pounds a year with a good garden to it does not every one see in a minute how this exchanging of fairs and markets for shops creates idlers and traffickers creates those locusts called middlemen who create nothing who add to the value of nothing who improve nothing but who live in idleness and who live well too out of the labour of the producer and the consumer The fair and the market, those wise institutions of our forefathers, and with regard to the management of which they were so scrupulously careful, the fair and the market bring the producer and the consumer in contact with each other. Whatever is gained is at any rate gained by one or the other of these. The fair and the market bring them together, and enable them to act for their mutual interest and convenience. The shop and the trafficker keeps them apart. The shop hides from both producer and consumer the real state of matters. The fair and the market lay everything open going to either you see the state of things at once and the transactions are fair and just not disfigured too by falsehood and by those attempts at deception which disgrace traffickings in general very wise too and very just were the laws against forestalling and regrating. they were laws to prevent the producer and the consumer from being cheated by the trafficker there are whole bodies of men indeed a very large part of the community who live in idleness in this country in consequence of the whole current of the laws now running in favour of the trafficking monopoly. It has been a great object with all wise governments in all ages, from the days of Moses to the present day, to confine trafficking, mere trafficking, to as few hands as possible. It seems to be the main object of this government to give all possible encouragement to traffickers of every description, and to make them swarm like the lice of Egypt. There is that numerous sect, the Quakers. This sect arose in England, they were engendered by the Jewish system of usury. Till excises and loanmongering began, these vermin were never heard of in england they seem to have been hatched by that fraudulent system as maggots are bred by putrid meat or as the flounders come in the livers of rotten sheep the base vermin do not pretend to work all they talk about is dealing and the government in place of making laws that would put them in the stocks or cause them to be whipped at the cart's tail really seem anxious to encourage them and to increase their numbers nay it is not long since mr broom had the effrontery to move for leave to bring in a bill To make men liable to be hanged upon the bare word of these vagabonds this is with me something never to be forgotten but everything tends the same way all the regulations all the laws that have been adopted of late years have a tendency to give encouragement to the trickster and the trafficker and to take from the labouring classes all the honour and a great part of the food that fairly belonged to them in coming along yesterday from waltham chase to soberton down we passed by a big white house upon a hill that was when i lived at botley occupied by one good lad who was a cock-justice of the peace and who had been a chap of some sort or other in india there was a man of the name of singleton who lived in waltham chase and who was deemed to be a great poacher this man having been forcibly ousted by the order of this good lad and some others from an encroachment that he had made in the forest threatened revenge soon after this a horse i forget to whom it belonged was stabbed or shot in the night-time in a field singleton was taken up tried at winchester convicted and transported i cannot relate exactly what took place i remember that there were some curious circumstances attending the conviction of this man the people in that neighbourhood were deeply impressed with these circumstances singleton was transported but Goodlad and his wife were both dead and buried in less i believe than three months after the departure of poor singleton i do not know that any injustice really was done but i do know that a great impression was produced and a very sorrowful impression too on the minds of the people in that neighbourhood. I cannot quit Waltham Chase without observing that I heard last year that a bill was about to be petitioned for to enclose that chase. Never was so monstrous a proposition in this world. The Bishop of Winchester is Lord of the Manor over this chase. If the chase be enclosed, the timber must be cut down young and old, and here are a couple of hundred acres of land worth ten thousand acres of land in the new forest this is as fine timberland as any in the wheels of surrey sussex or kent there are two enclosures of about forty acres each perhaps that were simply surrounded by a bank being thrown up about twenty years ago only twenty years ago and on the poorest part of the chase too and these are now as beautiful plantations of young oak trees as man ever set his eyes on many of them as big or bigger round than my thigh therefore besides the sweeping away of two or three hundred cottages Besides plunging into ruin and misery all these numerous families, here is one of the finest pieces of timberland in the whole kingdom, going to be cut up into miserable clay fields for no earthly purpose, but that of gratifying the stupid greediness of those who think that they must gain, if they are to the breadth of their private fields. But if a thing like this be permitted, we must be prettily furnished with commissioners of woods and forests. I do not believe that they will sit in Parliament and see a bill like this passed, and hold their tongues but if they were to do it there is no measure of reproach which they would not merit let them go and look at the two plantations of oaks of which i have just spoken and then let them give their consent to such a bill if they can thursley monday evening twenty third october when i left weston my intention was to go from hambledon to up park thence to arundel thence to brighton thence to eastbourne thence to Wittersham and kent and then by cranbrook tunbridge godston and reigate to london but when I got to Botley, and particularly when I got to Hambledon, I found my horse's back so much hurt by the saddle, that I was afraid to take so long a stretch, and therefore resolved to come away straight to this place, to go hence to Rygate, and so to London. Our way, therefore, this morning was over Butser Hill to Petersfield, in the first place, then to Liphook, and then to this place, in all about twenty-four miles. Butser Hill belongs to the back chain of the South Downs, and indeed it terminates that chain to the westward, it is the highest hill in the whole country. Something that Hindhead, which is the famous sand hill over which the Portsmouth road goes at sixteen miles to the north of this great chalk hill, something that Hindhead is the highest hill of the two. Be this as it may, butser Hill, which is the right hand hill of the two, between which you go at three miles from Petersfield, going towards Portsmouth, this butser Hill is, I say, quite high enough, and was more than high enough for us, for it took us up amongst clouds that wet us very nearly to the skin in going from mr goldsmith's to the hill it is all uphill for five miles now and then a little stoop not much but regularly with these little exceptions uphill for these five miles the hill appears at a distance to be a sharp ridge on its top it is however not so it is in some parts half a mile wide or more the road lies right along the middle of it from west to east and just when you are at the highest part of the hill it is very narrow from north to south not more i think than about a hundred or a hundred and thirty yards this is as interesting a spot i think as the foot of man ever was placed upon here are two valleys one to your right and the other to your left very little less than half a mile down to the bottom of them and much steeper than a tiled roof of a house these valleys may be where they join the hill three or four hundred yards broad they get wider as they get further from the hill of a clear day you see all the north of hampshire nay the whole county together with a great part of surrey and of sussex you see the whole of the south downs to the eastward as far as your eye can carry you and lastly you see over ports down hill which lies before you to the south and there are spread open to your view the isle of Portsea, porchester wimmering fairham gosport portsmouth the harbour spithead the isle of wight and the ocean but something still more interesting occurred to me here in the year 1808 when i was coming on horseback over the same hill from botley to london It was a very beautiful day, and in summer, before I got upon the hill, on which I had never been before, a shepherd told me to keep on in the road in which I was, till I came to the London Turnpike Road. When I got to within a quarter of a mile of this particular point of the hill, I saw at this point what I thought was a cloud of dust, and speaking to my servant about it, I found that he thought so too, but this cloud of dust disappeared all at once. Soon after there appeared to arise another cloud of dust at the same place and then that disappeared and the spot was clear again as we were trotting along a pretty smart pace we soon came to this narrow place having one valley to our right and the other valley to our left and there to my great astonishment i saw the clouds come one after another each appearing to be about as big as two or three acres of land skimming along in the valley on the north side a great deal below the tops of the hills and successively as they arrived at our end of the valley rising up crossing the narrow pass and then descending down into the other valley and going off to the south, so that we who sat there upon our horses were alternately in clouds and in sunshine. It is an universal rule that if there be a fog in the morning, and that fog go from the valleys to the tops of the hills, there will be rain that day, and if it disappear by sinking in the valley, there will be no rain that day. The truth is that fogs are clouds, and clouds are fogs. They are more or less full of water, but they are all water, sometimes a sort of steam, and sometimes water that falls and drops. Yesterday morning the fogs had ascended to the tops of the hills, and it was raining on all the hills round about us before it began to rain in the valleys. We, as I observed before, got pretty nearly wet to the skin upon the top of Butser Hill, but we had the pluck to come on and let the clothes dry upon our backs. I must here relate something that appears very interesting to me, and something which, though it must have been seen by every man that has lived in the country, or at least in any hilly country, has never been particularly mentioned by anybody as far as i can recollect we frequently talk of clouds coming from dews and we actually see the heavy fogs become clouds we see them go up to the tops of hills and taking a swim round actually come and drop down upon us and wet us through but i am now going to speak of clouds coming out of the sides of hills in exactly the same manner that you see smoke come out of a tobacco pipe and rising up with a wider and wider head like the smoke from a tobacco pipe go to the top of the hill or over the hill or very much above it and then come over the valleys in rain at about a mile's distance from mr palmer's house at Bolitry in herefordshire there is a large long beautiful wood covering the side of a lofty hill winding round in the form of a crescent the bend of the crescent being towards mr palmer's house it was here that i first observed this mode of forming clouds the first time i noticed it i pointed it out to mr palmer we stood and observed cloud after cloud come out from different parts of the side of the hill and tower up and go over the hill out of sight he told me that that was a certain sign that it would rain that day for that these clouds would come back again and would fall in rain it rained sure enough and i found that the country people all round about had this mode of the forming of the clouds as a sign of rain the hill is called penyard and this forming of the clouds they call old penyard smoking his pipe and it is a rule that it is sure to rain during the day if old penyard smokes his pipe in the morning these appearances take place especially in warm and sultry weather it was very warm yesterday morning it had thundered violently the evening before we felt it hot even while the rain fell upon us at butser hill petersfield lies in a pretty broad and very beautiful valley on three sides of it are very lofty hills partly downs and partly covered with trees and as we proceeded on our way from the bottom of butser hill to petersfield we saw thousands upon thousands of clouds continually coming puffing out from different parts of these hills and towering up to the top of them i stopped george several times to make him look at them to see them come puffing out of the chalk downs as well as out of the woodland hills and bade him remember to tell his father of it when he should get home to convince him that the hills of hampshire could smoke their pipes as well as those of herefordshire this is a really curious matter i have never read in any book anything to lead me to suppose that the observation has ever found its way into print before. Sometimes you will see only one or two clouds during a whole morning, come out of the side of a hill, but we saw thousands upon thousands bursting out, one after another, in all parts of these immense hills. The first time that I have leisure, when I am in the high countries again, I will have a conversation with some old shepherd about this matter. If he cannot enlighten me upon the subject, I am sure that no philosopher can. We came through Petersfield without stopping, and baited our horses at Lipook. Where we stayed about half an hour in coming from Lipuk to this place we overtook a man who asked for relief he told me he was a weaver and as his accent was northern i was about to give him the balance that i had in hand arising from our savings in the fasting way amounting to about three shillings and sixpence but unfortunately for him i asked him what place he had lived at as a weaver and he told me that he was a spittlefields weaver i instantly put on my glove and returned my purse into my pocket saying go then to sidmouth and peel and the rest of them and get relief for i have this minute while i was stopping at Liphook, read in the evening mail newspaper an address to the king from the spitalfields weavers for which address they ought to suffer death from starvation in that address those base wretches tell the king that they were loyal men that they detested the designing men who were guilty of seditious practices in eighteen seventeen they in short expressed their approbation of the power of imprisonment bill of all the deeds committed against the reformers in eighteen seventeen and eighteen nineteen they by fair inference expressed their approbation of the thanks given to the manchester yeomanry you are one of them my name is william cobbett and i would sooner relieve a dog than relieve you just as i was closing my harangue we overtook a countryman and woman that were going the same way the weaver attempted explanations he said that they only said it in order to get relief but that they did not mean it in their hearts oh base dogs said i it is precisely by such men that ruin is brought upon nations. It is precisely by such baseness and insincerity, such scandalous cowardice, that ruin has been brought upon them. I had two or three shillings to give you. I had them in my hand. I have put them back into my purse. I trust I shall find somebody more worthy of them. Rather than give them to you, I would fling them into that sandpit and bury them for ever. How curiously things happen! It was by mere accident that I took up a newspaper to read it was merely because i was compelled to stay a quarter of an hour in the room without doing anything and above all things it was miraculous that i should take up the evening mail into which i believe i never before looked in my whole life i saw the royal arms at the top of the paper took it for the old times and in a sort of lounging mood said to george give me hold of that paper and let us see what that foolish devil anna brodie says seeing the word spittlefields i read on till i got to the base and scoundrelly part of the address I then turned over and looked at the title of the paper and the date of it, resolving in my mind to have satisfaction of some sort or other upon these base vagabonds, little did I think that an opportunity would so soon occur, of showing my resentment against them, and that too in so striking, so appropriate, and so efficient a manner. I dare say that it was some tax-eating scoundrel who drew up this address, which I will insert in the register as soon as I can find it, but that is nothing to me and my fellow-sufferers of 1817 and 1819 this infamous libel upon us is published under the name of the spittlefields weavers and if i am asked what the poor creatures were to do being without bread as they were i answer by asking whether they could find no knives to cut their throats with seeing that they ought to have cut their throats ten thousand times over if they could have done it rather than sanction the publication of so infamous a paper as this it is not thus that the weavers in the north have acted some scoundrel wanted to inveigle them into an applauding of the ministers but they though nothing so infamous as this address was proposed to them rejected the proposition though they were ten times more in want than the weavers of spitalfields have ever been they were only called upon to applaud the ministers for the recent orders in council but they justly said that the ministers had a great deal more to do before they would merit their applause what were these brave and sensible men have said to a tax-eating scoundrel who should have called upon them to present an address to the king and in that address to applaud the terrible deeds committed against the people in eighteen seventeen and eighteen nineteen i have great happiness in reflecting that this baseness of the spitalfields weavers will not bring them one single mouthful of bread this will be their lot this will be the fruit of their baseness and the nation the working classes of the nation will learn from this that the way to get redress of their grievances the way to get food and raiment in exchange for their labour the way to ensure good treatment from the government is not to crawl to that government to lick its hands and seem to deem it an honour to be its slaves before we got to thursley i saw three poor fellows getting in turf for their winter fuel and i gave them a shilling apiece to a boy at the bottom of fine i gave the other sixpence towards buying him a pair of gloves and thus i disposed of the money which was at one time actually out of my purse and going into the hand of the loyal spittlefields weaver. we got to this place mr knowles's of thursley about five o'clock in the evening very much delighted with our ride Kensington, Thursday, 26th October. We left at Mr. Knowles's on Thursday morning, came through Godalming, stopped at Mr. Rowland's at Chilworth, and then came on through Dorking to Collie Farm near Rygate, where we slept. I have so often described the country from Hindhead to the foot of Rygate Hill, and from the top of Rygate Hill to the Thames, that I shall not attempt to do it again here. When we got to the river Way, we crossed it from Godalming Pissmarsh to come up to Chilworth. I desired George to look round the country, and asked him if he did not think it was very pretty. I put the same question to him when we got into the beautiful neighbourhood of Dorking, and when we got to Reigate, and especially when we got to the tip-top of Reigate Hill, from which there is one of the finest views in the whole world. But ever after our quitting Mr. Knowles's, George insisted that that was the prettiest country that we had seen in the course of our whole ride, and that he liked Mr. Knowles's place better than any other place that he had seen. I reminded him of Weston Grove, and I reminded him of the beautiful ponds and grass and plantations at Mr. Leech's, but he still persisted in his judgment in favour of Mr. Knowles's place, in which decision, however, the greyhounds and the beagles had manifestly a great deal to do. From Thursley to Rygate inclusive, on the chalk side as well as on the sand side, the crops of turnips of both kinds were pretty nearly as good as I ever saw them in my life. On a farm of Mr. Drummond's at Aldbury, rented by a farmer petto, I saw a piece of cabbages of the large kind which will produce, I should think, not much short of five-and-twenty tons to the acre, and here I must mention, I do not know why I must by the by, an instance of my own skill in measuring land by the eye. The cabbages stand upon half a field, and on the part of it furthest from the road where we were. We took the liberty to open the gate and ride into the field, in order to get closer to the cabbages to look at them. I intended to notice this piece of cabbages, and i asked george how much ground he thought there was in the piece he said two acres and asked me how much i thought i said that there were above four acres and that i should not wonder if there were four acres and a half thus divided in judgment we turned away from the cabbages to go out of the field at another gate which pointed towards our road near this gate we found a man turning a heap of manure this man as it happened had hoed the cabbages by the acre or had had a hand in it we asked him how much ground there was in that piece of cabbages and he told us four acres and a half. I suppose it will not be difficult to convince a reader that George looked upon me as a sort of conjurer. At Mr. Pym's at Colley Farm we found one of the very finest pieces of mangle-wurzel that I had ever seen in my life. We calculated that there would be little short of forty tons to the acre, and there being three acres to the piece, Mr. Pym calculates that this mangle-wurzel, the produce of these three acres of land, will carry his ten or twelve milk-cows nearly, if not wholly, through the winter." there did not appear to be a spurious plant and there was not one plant that had gone to seed in the whole piece i have never seen a more beautiful mass of vegetation and i had the satisfaction to learn after having admired the crop that the seed came from my own shop and that it had been saved by myself talking of the shop i came to it in a very few hours after looking at this wurzel, and i soon found that it was high time for me to get home again for here had been pretty devil's works going on here i found the greek cause in all its appendages figuring away in grand style but i must make this matter of separate observation i have put an end to my ride of august september and october eighteen twenty six during which i have travelled five hundred and sixty eight miles and have slept in thirty different beds having written three monthly pamphlets called the poor man's friend and have also written including the present one eleven registers i have been in three cities in about twenty market towns in perhaps five hundred villages and i have seen the people nowhere so well off as in the neighbourhood of Weston Grove, and nowhere so badly off as in the dominions of the select vestry of Hurstbourne Tarrant, commonly called up-husband. During the whole of this ride, I have very rarely been abed after daylight, I have drunk neither wine nor spirits, I have eaten no vegetables, and only a very moderate quantity of meat, and it may be useful to my readers to know, that the riding of twenty miles was not so fatiguing to me at the end of my tour, as the riding of ten miles was at the beginning of it some ill-natured fools will call this egotism why is it egotism getting upon a good strong horse and riding about the country has no merit in it there is no conjuration in it it requires neither talents nor virtues of any sort but health is a very valuable thing and when a man has had the experience which i have had in this instance it is his duty to state to the world and to his own countrymen and neighbours in particular the happy effects of early rising sobriety abstinence and a resolution to be active it is his duty to do this and it becomes imperatively his duty when he has seen in the course of his life so many men so many men of excellent hearts and of good talents rendered prematurely old cut off ten or twenty years before their time by a want of that early rising sobriety abstinence and activity from which he himself has derived so much benefit and such inexpressible pleasure during this ride i have been several times wet to the skin at some times in my life after having indulged for a long while in coddling myself up in the house these soakings would have frightened me half out of my senses but i care very little about them i avoid getting wet if i can but it is very seldom that rain come when it would has prevented me from performing the day's journey that i had laid out beforehand and this is a very good rule to stick to your intention whether it be attended with inconveniences or not to look upon yourself as bound to do it in the whole of this riot i have met with no one untoward circumstance properly so called except the wounding of the back of my horse, which grieve me much more on his account than on my own. I have a friend who, when he is disappointed in accomplishing anything that he has laid out, says that he has been beaten, which is a very good expression for the thing. I was beaten, in my intention to go through Sussex and Kent, but I will retrieve the affair in a very few months' time, or perhaps few weeks. The collective will be here now in a few days, and as soon as I have got the Preston petition fairly before them, and find, as I dare say I shall, that the petition will not be tried until february i shall take my horse and set off again to that very spot in the london turnpike road at the foot of Butser hill whence i turned off to go to petersfield instead of turning the other way to go to up park i shall take my horse and go to this spot and with a resolution not to be beaten next time go along through the whole length of sussex and sweep round through kent and surrey till i come to reigate again and then home to kensington for I do not like to be beaten by horses sore back, or by anything else, and besides that there are several things in Sussex and Kent that I want to see and give an account of. For the present, however, farewell to the country, and now for the Wen and its villainous corruptions. End of chapter 28